Hi, this is Amy Lombardi, Director in the Entertainment Relations Department at TuneCore, based in Austin, Texas. Welcome to the Music Made Me podcast. Today I'm going to be talking to Brendan Anthony, Director of the Texas Music Office. We're going to be talking about the office's programming and uh, their work across the state of Texas and the country. Hey, Brendan, thanks for joining us today. It's great to see you. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me in. Yeah, it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. Um, I kind of want to start at the beginning because I know that you have a, a very early background in music. How'd you get started in music? Yeah, I've been playing music my whole life. Uh, I started playing violin when I was three or four. I was doing the hour a day, Suzuki method, uh, classical violin all the way up until high school. Um, wow. Kind of put it away for a bit and then rediscovered it when... My friends started bands, you know, <laughs> cover bands, horrible cover bands that you're in in high school. Um, started playing violin and fiddle with them, um, sort of folk bands. And um, I was in College Station, which is kind of rural. So we were playing a lot of like country cover stuff. Mm-hmm. So I learned how to play like Ray Price and leads on George Strait records and that kind of thing. And so that led me into fiddle playing. And I met a group of singer-songwriter types who were coming through playing the university. Uh, and they became uh, successful Texas brands. Right. Un- under themselves. That was Pat Green and uh, Ingram and Roger Crager and Corey Morrow and on and on. I met <clears throat> when I was about 18 or 19, I met uh, Lloyd Maines over in Austin. Oh! Yeah, Lloyd was great. <laughs> and for whatever reason, and I always say this, I never miss an opportunity. For whatever reason, he was really patient with me and would call me in to do other sessions he was working on. And I owned a tuner and uh, <laughs> I could take direction. And I think he liked that. And so he would bring me over and he taught me everything I knew about working in a studio and, and recording in a studio. So I moved into doing a lot of records with him, uh, playing 200 shows a year wow. uh, while I was in college, 150 to 200 shows. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah, it was pretty nuts. So I finished at Texas A&M in 99 and had already moved to Austin, was already doing uh, recording stuff and based out of here, kept my stuff here and was on the road the whole time. Um, so um, quick sum up there, I stayed on the road for about 15 years, living, wow. in, living in buses and so hotels. So that's and, what, kind of like when you were in like the music industry as the musician part. Yeah, I lived it and breathed it every day. And so if I wasn't playing with, with uh, Pat or these other guys, I was playing in Austin seven nights a week, uh, 6th Street and all the other places you you can pick gigs up, which is a blast. So for about 15, a little over 15 years, I did that full time. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now, how did you transition from that role and that lifestyle to um, find yourself as the director of the Texas Music Office, which is, I'm sure that people out there are just surprised to hear that the great state of Texas also has a music office. It's amazing. Yeah, it's a really good thing we do, and I'll get into that here in a sec. But, you know, when when I draw a line back from what I'm doing today to what I was doing in 2010 when I left, it looks clear. But when I was leaving, that lifestyle was a little bit like an athlete leaving uh, you know, a professional baseball career or something else. Of course, I wasn't as famous as those guys, but um, of course, but um, it it was a drastic lifestyle change. It was really scary, but I had some friends who were um, working on getting some tech, music tech type companies started, and I went to work for them, helped them find some money to get a company started. And so I had a place to go, but I wasn't playing music any longer. So it was a pretty big transition, lifestyle change, and uh, worked really hard at this company we helped pull together called, uh, it's called, uh, one Live Media today. It was Music One Live then. That's right. I wanted to ask you about that too. Yeah, so it was fun. I and mean, we built it from the ground up. We were originally housed out of the old backyard offices. Okay. Um, so way out there, we didn't yeah. have heat, didn't have AC. <laughs> we had 10, 10 people banging away on computers in this little room starting this company up. And it grew into a pretty uh, established company. It's still going today. Uh, I still keep in touch with those guys. But we were doing e-commerce for uh, brands at that time like Beyonce and Willie Nelson and a whole bunch of other folks. And 
So we were working really hard. I was helping run fulfillment warehouses out of uh, Los Angeles and uh, Dallas and Heathrow. So I was always on the go. I uh, didn't really pick my head up for a while. And I got a call about five years into that when the new administration got elected uh, asking uh, if I was interested in taking over this role they had in their economic development, what became the economic development team. And uh, someone on their transition team whom I knew called and said, hey, we want an in- industry pro to come run this, take it over. Uh, and I didn't know all that much about it, honestly. Um, I was I was really grateful for the ask, uh, but I was doing something else that I'd really invested a lot of time in. So another big decision point, but uh, I'm glad I made it. Um, but that's really how it came about. I got called by one of the guys who was running transition. Yeah, and I think it, it, it actually makes total sense to have somebody – in that role that has toured as much as you have, who's like actually seen all the different sides of a musician's journey and the music industry, you know, the music industry professional's journey. Yeah. I mean, I have my own experience for sure. Everybody Every, does. Everybody's but, yeah. got their own, but uh, you know, we had major label deals and we had major label fallouts and we had touring like crazy. And, you know, we had the ups and downs of a, a, a touring and recording lifestyle. I, I did in particular. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, from my own experience, I lived it and breathed it for you know, a decade and a half, but uh, I have my own experience. It's it's not everybody else's, but. Well, I guess I think about it in the way like when, when you're developing programs, like you, given the, you know, your own unique experience, but given those experiences, having been a musician, having been a touring musician, having worked a music industry job, like it does really help when you're developing new programming for an office to kind of have having lived all those different parts of the music industry. Yeah, I mean, one one of the core questions I ask every time we, we do just about anything is, who's this going to help? I mean, is this worthwhile? We don't have that many resources to expend, and so is this worthwhile to people who are actually doing it? I mean, the experience I did have was I made every nickel I ever made in my life from pulling it out of thin air playing music for a living. That's hard, right. you know? And yeah. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't presume to know everyone's life in the industry, but I know it's hard, Yeah, you know? And I've never done anything else. I've never gotten a day job. There was no plan B. It's music is that kind of thing. If you're going to succeed in it, that's the only way you can approach it. And if your answer when someone asks you, why do you want to be in the music industry is, isn't, it's the only thing I've ever wanted to do. And that's all I'm ever going to do. Then go find something else to do. (laughs) And so when I look at decisions at the office, you know, they, they may seem bureaucratic or administrative to some people, but to me, it's, is this going to help people who were like me long term? I mean, why else would we, would we do those things? I, I try to bring that experience to bear. Like I said, my experience is mine, but it's what I have in the back of my head every day when I yeah. make these decisions at the office. And I think it's I I think it's cool that you came up as somebody on the road because well, the, the the bureaucracy is to me it's not even a, a question. But uh, so the, the 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 Texas Music Office has been around since, according to my research, 1985. Is that right? Yeah, it came into being around 90 or 91. Okay, um, but the 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 push to create something like what exists today started around the time you mentioned there was a statewide music commission built Um, there were some elected leaders who said hey we have this music thing in the state do we want to support it systemically yes or no and they essentially created a board of statewide leaders and decision makers and they got together and they decided yeah we're going to create this office Um, so that came about in about 90 or 91 the actual office was created so it's been around for quite a while now about 30 years now so it's a it's a interesting long running project. Yeah, I'd so say. I think I have another question then in there because so when did it become part of or when did when did it become like part of an the governor's office? Ann Richards moved it into her office so she could protect it. She was a passionate music lover, Austinite, and she moved it into the governor's office then. Okay. Um, now, please feel free to check my math on that. That's the research I've done, and and that's what was explained to me. The latest change it kind of floated around a little while, so it was. 
it was in the governor's office, but it was under like criminal justice and a whole bunch of these different agencies oversaw it as part of their org chart. And now it's under economic development. It was just moved there about four years ago. Okay. So it's, I think it's found a pretty practical and natural home now. Yeah. Um, but for quite a while, I think it sort of floated around under different agencies um, that it had to report to. So uh, I don't know what that experience was like. So there's only been one other person to run the office, Casey Monahan, who was there for 25 years. Right. And he could really speak to that, you know, what it was like to have this office housed under all these different agencies, the challenges that went along with that. My only experience is that it's been under economic development, which is a natural and, like I said, practical place for an office like ours to be, given our focus. So we enjoy a lot of support. Like We're still in the governor's office, so direct report to head of economic development and then up to the governor. So pretty straight line to get the support we need when we need it. I don't know if that's existed before. I hmm. kind of think it hasn't maybe, but it's always been in the since Ann Richards been in the governor's office. Hmm. That's interesting. What? How did you decide what which initiatives to add to the office's focus? Well, that took some time. You know, I think uh, given the amount of research I had to do to get my feet under me at the office, having so many programs that, that have been around for so long, just taking time to understand those took months. And to go around the state and around the country establishing myself anew to people whom I had known for a long time and then creating new relationships or reconnecting with you know relationships that the office already had took a long time. And we did an audit as well of existing programs that our friends, uh, the Capstone Program at St. Ed's, help us put together oh yeah i know this that, yeah that they're, program. they're fantastic so they they came in a group of grad students came in and just gave us outside eyes and said here's what we think you do you know you may being in the office think you do these things but here's due to our sampling what we think you do and so we sort of combined those things and took a good look an audit of what the office did that day mm-hmm. which took several months and then we started to decide if we had more time and more resources, what would be important to us? And then we started answering those questions through expert panels we brought in to speak with us and the governor. Um, a lot of just uh, calls to people and meetings with people. Yeah. Uh, that's really the process we went through. And that took months. I can imagine. How did you personally decide what you wanted to focus on in the director's role? I mean, there's the office. You have a team of three, I believe. <laughs> that's right. um, including myself. Including yourself. But that's but you have a solid team. So um, mm-hmm. how did you decide about what you were going to do with your role particularly? Well, I, I, like I said, I did that audit. I took a look at um, what the office did well, what I, I thought it was capable of. And then, like I said, we invited industry leaders to sit down with us. We did one on November 9th of 2015. Uh, where we brought uh, about 20 industry leaders, people who owned established companies in the industry, people who'd made a name for themselves doing great things out of Texas. And we sat them down with myself and Brian Daniel, the head of economic development, and Governor Abbott. And we said, shoot, what should this office do? How do you need us to support you? What do you think's happening in the state right now? All those questions. And I just took away you know, the, the top-level items that I thought we could help them with and started figuring out what programs would look like that could help us you know, get in the game with them. Uh, and that's where music friendly communities came from. Uh, that's where some of our uh, national advocacy efforts came from. So I tried to make an informed decision based on other people who had a lot more skin in the game, uh, based on their thoughts about what you know we could do well. And so that's where these things have come from is really just listening to other people. 
Yeah. You, so I want to talk about music-friendly communities, but you just mentioned um, your national advocacy, and that includes the letter that the governor wrote to Department uh, of Justice, Department yeah. of Justice about the Music Modernization Act, or what, wasn't called that. It was actually called something, or what, maybe I'm confusing the two. Yeah. So there are two different things that have happened so far, right? Um, one I can talk about publicly. One I can generally talk about, just based on how some things, you know, happen, but. Uh, there was a 100% licensing ruling that the Department of Justice a couple of years ago came up with that made no sense to songwriters. Um, essentially, if you're an ASCAP writer and you write with a BMI writer, if the BMI writer has a smaller share, then naturally the streaming services would go to him or her to get them to sell the rights for the entire song to their streaming service for a rate that's lower than they would get if they went to the person who owned the greater share, right? So the 100% licensing rule made that possible. And that's not how songwriting works in the real world. You have to get both people's consent or all three people's or four people who wrote the song's consent to use the song somewhere now. That's the way it's supposed to work. So the Department of Justice came out with this ruling that just frankly didn't make sense to small business. And that's how I look at songwriters. And that's how I look at managers and all the people who do things in the music industry in Texas. I look at them as small businesses that need to be protected. So we had the governor weigh in and create a legal argument against what the Department of Justice was trying to do in regards to 100% licensing. And it went a long way. Uh, to having uh, that decision reversed, um, so that's great. I remember that. Yeah, that ago. that was a big deal, and and I didn't necessarily mean it to be a big deal, but the point was a sitting governor weighed in on a Department of Justice ruling about songwriting, and that made waves nationally because uh, the governor of Texas is a powerful person, and to have him weigh in on twelfth largest economy in the world. In the world, that's right, <laughs> and that you know that person uh, when he decides to get in into a. Uh, a legal argument like that is it, it makes it, it makes waves and and for him to weigh in that heavily on behalf of songwriters did cement our role as national advocates now you know we need many many more examples like that and you brought up music modernization um that's in- an incorrectly ongoing... by the way i was confusing the two <laughs> so music modernization is an omnibus bill uh that includes pre-72 and amp uh, the amp uh, allows producers to be credited on records and get points on records directly through uh, a new music licensing collective. Sound Exchange has been doing it sort of de facto for years, but this makes it official. Pre-72 requires streaming services and uh, uh, satellite radio to start paying artists that created works prior to 1972. Uh, the fact that they haven't been doing that's odd. But uh, this this um, this law would, would make that uh, official. And then Music modernization is an extremely dense piece of legislation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would go into it, but I think I'd bore all of you to death. But it's a very important step forward in copyright reform. Uh, copyright reform that hasn't happened since 1909. Right. We, we, we're, we, we're selling completely different parts of music. That's right. Yeah. So it's a really interesting rework on copyright reform that just passed unanimously through the House and the Senate. Uh, even with amendments, it went back through the House and just passed. So last step is President's signature. That'll come up whenever he gets around to it. Uh, but we did we did get in, you know, we got involved in that. Our role as Texas Music Office is to inform uh, small business in the state about things coming down the pike that may or may affect them. And so we played a pretty, you know, heavy role. And, you know, we went on radio, we went on podcasts, we did lots of informational um, uh, posts and that sort of thing about what was happening in the process, what it actually meant for people. Make your decisions either way, if you like it or not, but you need to know about it, that sort of thing. Sure. Um, and then we did some work with trade, trade organizations like RIAA and NMPA and NSAI and these folks who are out there fighting that fight, the Grammy chapter, every day, um, you know, to talk to um, elected leadership about why this was important to small business in Texas. But they consider it, not that they vote one way or the other, 
but that they consider what it meant for thousands of people in the state. So behind the scenes roles that are really important, um, but I think it positioned us again as, um, you know, sort of a, a go-to resource for small business advocacy. Yeah, and it's one of the other, it, it's kind of a umbrella of programming that your office now handles in a way, like um, mm-hmm. a, the advocacy portion of it, I think. Yeah. Just, I, like even just the, the public awareness. Yeah, I envision the, a larger role, but we have to be really careful because we can't lobby people. You know, right. We can't put forward legislation that's going to, you know, be taken up federally or anything like that. That's not our job. Right. But our job is to understand it and translate it to people so they can make their decisions about whether it's important to them or not. I think it is. Um, and we can say when asked, hey, look, this will be good for these people, bad for these people. You know, we need to protect small business here, bottom line. Nominally, that's what we should be doing. So we may end up on different sides of issues from people that we've partnered with before, and that's all good. But, you know, I think that should be a role of ours. Yeah, I agree. So um, we were kind of talking about uh, earlier, we kind of mentioned music-friendly communities. I'm really into this. (laughs) Um, So can you tell tell everybody what they are? Yeah, it's a program I love, and it's a program that takes quite a bit of time, um, but I'm proud to do it. So... I think that Texas, uh, you mentioned it's the 12th largest economy in the world. All that's true. Uh, It puts hundreds of thousands of industry professionals to work every day, creates billions of dollars in earnings. What would it be if we actually got into the game with communities around the state to actually systemically support it in community to community, right? So if you look around in Austin, and I, I say this anytime I travel anywhere, if I were a young person that was serious about getting started in the music industry and I wanted to be in Texas and not Nashville, and not L.A., and not New York, yep. where would I go? Well, the natural answer is Austin, not because it's geographically centered, not because it has the reputation of the live music capital of the world. None of that would matter to me. What would matter to me is I could get health care, I could get psychological help if I needed it, continuing education, patronage if I met the bar. I would also have systems in the city that would listen to me if I became an industry professional like the Austin Music Commission and the Music Development Office here that Erica runs. These things are unique internationally. The fact that Austin has these systems built is a story we should tell, but it shouldn't be the only example in the state, right? Right. I think Dallas needs this. I think Denton and Fort Worth and San Antonio and Lubbock and Amarillo and San, uh, and Corpus Christi and Houston, all, all these places need it. They all have this huge contribution to the Texas music economy, but they have no systems set up to deal with uh, real common sense um, asks of the city, right? They mm-hmm. get together with pitchforks when things go wrong. The city doesn't listen to that. They don't, they don't listen to noise. They need a con- concerted way to come together to decide what uh, real problems are to them, city to city, and then they need to be able to address those to the city. And the city needs to have a way to listen to that mm-hmm. and respond to it because these are important parts of their economy that are often overlooked. Yeah, They're talked about as um, you know, tourist you know, destinations or you know, these venues are, these artists who came from... Houston or Fort Worth, and they're talked about on billboards and everything, but the city doesn't do very much to help them in formative parts of their career. Right, and to continue cultivating that, kind of keep it fertile. That's right. Yeah. So the Music Friendly Communities strategy seeks to address that. Every community looks different. Lubbock looks different than Houston. Dallas looks different on and on. So we work with these cities to tailor a program that accomplishes the same thing, we hope, but may look vastly different in each city. So... Uh, we have four cities certified right now, Austin, of course, um, Fort Worth, Denton, and San Antonio. We're about to certify several more. Who bet, they've gone through the process, about a year into the process right now, getting it going. And the reason it takes so long is because we ask cities to really get in the game. They've got to create an employee position. 
All right, so this isn't a thing they just go it's talk about. not a certificate. About. That's correct. <laughs> I, I don't want to drive around the, the state handing certificates out. I, yeah. That's meaningless use of time to me. So given our resources you talked about earlier, <laughs> all three of us. Uh, so we ask cities to create a, an employee position. We ask cities to create a music commission that can either be a city-appointed commission like it is in San Antonio and Austin, or it can be a nonprofit appointed by the city to be that listening forum for the music industry community. And then we really go out and help that city engage with their industry professionals by helping them measure it, create economic impact studies to sample that industry, really be able to talk about it in an educated way so they can say, yeah, we, we have music here, but here's exactly what that means. Right. Here's exactly who we're trying to protect and why. And we listen to them, right? So that's a big general way to talk about the program. Like I said, they, all these communities look different. Uh, but they're doing it their own way, and they are creating those administratively enforceable positions within city government. They're creating these nonprofit or city-appointed boards, and they're getting to work. It's really amazing. Like Fort Worth has already done some amazing stuff. So is San Antonio. Austin has a long track record of it. Sure. Uh, but Denton does as well. So every single place we've certified has really taken steps. The mayor of Fort Worth mentioned the music industry and what it meant and what it really was in her State of the City address this year. That's never happened before. That's amazing. It's amazing. And so each of these communities taking these intentional steps has already translated into change for those people in those cities. So we want 100 of them. Mm-hmm. You know, the ones that make sense are going to come forward first. But then there are small towns like Lindale and Stephenville that have really decided, hey, this isn't about legacy. This is about this generation and the next one. What's going to be here if we take steps? And that's what it's all about. And so... We'll certify them too if they go through the process. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been. To, I think I've been to some of these cities with you. Mm-hmm. Um, San Antonio. Yeah, <laughs> we've been to, certainly been to Corpus, uh, San Antonio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you can see it's starting to kind of just uh, not my favorite word to say, but coagulate into yeah. something that that is more formidable. Well, and it, there's kind of like a not a template, but an idea of how to how to how to do it. There's a structure, right? Yeah. And and whatever that looks like for those cities, they they can achieve that structure if they really decide to do it but that deciding and that executing is a long process so you were in corpus with me last week they're working through the process right now and part of that certification process is i show up and i talk about why we're doing this why we're serious about it and if you're not into it fine but here's the steps you got to take to get there um but then we also brought you know tunecore with us Mm -hmm. you and we brought riaa with us and we brought bmi and sound exchange and all these folks that these people have never formed from all over the country all over the country and they talked with industry professionals who have had no personal interaction with those companies ever in their professional careers but lord knows they need them yeah and And now they've got them and now they've got them and they've got a system that can ask them to come back or do business with them yeah whereas you know, it was one-offs. It was one guy calling and forming a relationship. Now he's the smartest guy in town, right? Because he's made those relationships. Mm-hmm. But if we had 50 of those people in town, you know, they were who were being, uh, you know, forming personal relationships with these people because there was a system asking them to do it, where would we be as an economy in five years? Right. Much better off, I think. So that's but one example. And we do this all over the state now. Yeah. And I think an- another part of it um, is keeping keeping young people in the in their cities you know because yeah, if there's not you know if there's if there's not a diverse uh, economy of industries then people are going to move to go find it so it's it's kind of cool you know that yeah i think you know uh, i'm not going to steal a bunch of lines from mayor adler but he did say something interesting he said you know we want to be a city of you know creators not just consumers and and he's right you know oh he's gosh, right on that yes. on that uh on that point 100 percent you know we want these cities to look as unique as they do today. We can't be as unique as we were 30 years ago because we're not the same place anymore. 
Well, we're not even the same world. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And we can't get hung up on that. Yeah, no, I agree. Change is going to happen. Growth's going to happen. But if cities, in my, in my thought process, if cities get intentional right now about supporting that creative class and people see that it's a viable profession and it's a respected one and it's one that's listened to, we'll be in a lot better position. And yeah. that's what we're trying to build with uh, music-friendly communities is a whole bunch of towns who are taking that approach versus towns who don't know how to handle sound ordinance problems or towns who don't understand common sense regulation and law enforcement for venues and artists and professionals who are out late at night doing their job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that'll be a unique thing that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. And the the whole, well, I was going to say agent of change, and then I thought, don't say that. And it's then I was term. already starting to say it, so I had to go ahead with it. It's but it is, it is something that goes along with sound ordinances. Yeah, hand is, in hand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Are you are do you think this program can be kind of implemented in cities uh, across the country and in states across the country? Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of the thinking that that informed my strategy comes from folks like the sound diplomacy people, Shane Shapiro and his group based out of uh, London. I mean, oh wow, these are strategies that are going into place all over the world. And we should be doing them here. Now, I'm not cribbing their whole program. They're, they do some things we can't do here. But, you know, the idea that cities should have a liaison or officer that they should have advisory boards. I mean, these are not brand new concepts, right? Uh, they're ones that I've sort of formed to these different communities and I'll continue to do it. Uh, there are people doing this research around the country, around the world. Uh, the folks in Toronto have done an incredible job of, of addressing their music needs that's right. and that's Ontario. So they've got a state and a city program that's, mm-hmm. that's working on these things. And uh, I would say they're maybe the closest thing to what we're trying to accomplish um, I look. If we lived in a world where the, all the major cities in the in the in the world really helped their creative class, I think it'd be a a better place to to live and work. So, yeah, I think there are things that could be implemented all over the place. Um, what do you know off the top of your head? Which other cities and states have music offices? Uh, there are a few. I mean, uh, Tennessee's got one. California's got. I mean, they, they've got their version of it. Yeah. Uh, and not to take anything away from what they do. I serve on panels with them all the time, and they're great folks, and they're in it for the right reasons, 100%. Sure. They're just empowered differently than we are. Mm-hmm. They're empowered to do different things. They're empowered to sort of be the person that understands that music happens in their state and then to help tourism talk about it as a selling point. And that's great. That's a really good thing for states to do. Ours just takes it so many steps further than that. It's in the governor's office. It's in the governor's office, not in film and tourism. We're yeah. we're sistered to those agencies, yeah. and we're all, but we just operate and empower differently. And we look at tourism as something that happens if we do our job, right? Tourism will happen if we create thousands of interesting music industry professionals who do amazing things in the state. People want to come visit that. Yeah. But we don't lean on them, you know, from the music office to go sell a story. That's not what we. That's not our business. Right. A lot of what you do is relationship building. Mm-hmm. Um, in Texas, throughout Texas, and other cities. Um, can you kind of share a bit about your approach to making connections, um, you know, in-state, outside, out-of-state, and building relationships for the office? Yeah, I think one of the biggest um, resources the office has are people who know about what we do and are supportive of it, right? Yeah. Bottom line, because, again, I'll go back to we have three people. We don't have any money. Um, so we can't write checks for things to get people to like us. You know, that's not what we do. That's not our business. Um, we don't lobby for things. So special interests don't like, you know, that's not the game we're in. So I try to form meaningful relationships. Casey tried to form meaningful relationships that would help the office move forward organically in the industry. Right. So, uh, you know, I've mentioned industry centers in the States, Nashville, uh, L.A., New York. 
Um, those are all external detectives, obviously, but we need their help if we're going to be effective at what we do, right? We need, we need people in uh, top-level uh, positions in important companies to the music industry to pay attention to what we're doing yeah. so we can stay better informed. And that means that they call me and say, man, this is happening. You should pay attention to it. You know, if I didn't make those relationships and they didn't trust me, they didn't trust what the office did, we'd be on an island and we wouldn't be any good to anybody, I think. That's, sure. that's what I think. No, I, I think that's, I mean, I would say the same thing about, you know, our, you know my role at TuneCore is, mm-hmm. is heavy in building relationships so that people consider, you know, sharing information with us. That's gonna... We need better informed industry professionals in the state. We need more infrastructure in the state. We need more people in major uh, power positions in the music industry to think of us as an important industry center, not a cottage industry for touring, not a cottage industry for live music. Uh, that's a that's a mistake on their part to think of us that way, I think. And I think the more that they understand that we have some huge things going on and we create a, an enormous economic impact in the state, the conversation changes. Um, so just like you do at TuneCore, you know, creating personal relationships, they might not always use your service necessarily, sure. but you're bringing people together so that they hear five ideas that day that they didn't know anything about. Yep. And that's sort of what we try to bring to the table too, is if we're not plugged in, if we're not doing our job in, in those industry centers and we're not creating real meaningful relationships in all those towns in Texas, I mentioned too, the information didn't get to the right people either. So I need those relationships in all these major cities, smaller communities around the state, and I need to be a direct line for information from people who are actually moving and shaking in the industry down to people who are just getting started. Sure. Yep. And we're Switzerland in this whole thing. It really is a good place to be. Yeah. People don't look at us wondering what our angle is. Right. Our angle is we want to help small business in Texas. We think it's important. I have the numbers to prove it. What are we going to do? I, I, I just want to like interrupt our conversation for a second and just point out that you keep referring to musicians, songwriters, bands as small business. Mm-hmm. And I just I really want everybody to think about themselves as a small business. You can be an artist and still a small business. It doesn't right. make your art less credible. It's crucial. So. I think that if people make the mistake, and it is a mistake, of thinking because they're an artist that they shouldn't pay attention to things that a roofer pays attention to or a plumber pays attention to or a programmer pays attention to, why should they hope to have any success in the same playing field that everyone else plays in? Yeah. And if they make the mistake that they're an artist and that's all they can focus on, we won't hear, I don't know if we're going to hear that much about them unless they're just lucky and get surrounded by people who are pulling them along. And that happens too. That's fine. But they should all pay attention to what makes a business work. Yeah, bottom line. I mean, well, that way you know that nobody's stealing, stealing from, from, your, me, yeah. from your business. 100%. <laughs> yeah, thanks for saying that. I think it's a, I, I say it all the time, and I get really worried when I hear folks talk about music solely as art, you know, because yeah. it is, and it's got enormous cultural impact, and we should never take away from any of that. But there is the other side of the coin, and we don't talk about them both. We're doing a disservice. Yeah, I agree. I, and and I don't know that it's like a permission thing that artists need to feel like it's okay to say <laughs> I'm a business and that doesn't take away from their art. But I just, mm-hmm. I don't want anybody to think it's crass. Yeah, there you go. Well said. Um, so, you know what I want to talk to you about? The, the, this is like a crazy, amazing database that the Texas Music Office has as the Texas Music Industry Directory. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've, you've ever seen it, but it's incredible. It's like... It's if really cool. you if and it's free mm-hmm. and it's this resource of um independent artists and like any music related business you could imagine um it's filled with those those businesses and individuals from across the state it's crazy 
Yeah. So in addition to the hundreds of thousands of relationships that my predecessor Casey made that really did the music office in the industry a lot of good, he created this database that usually that used I'm sorry, that used to take the form of sort of a white pages phone book that went out all over the country. Wow. They would print thousands of these things. And I still find it interesting, albeit William Morris office, you know, talking to somebody there and they'll pull out the book. They're like, Man, I've still got this thing. <laughs> oh you know? my gosh. And it really did them a lot of good, right? So this is uh, this is a piece of the office that was kind of built into stone over there, and it's something we, um, I call it gardening. Like, we're gardening on that thing all the time to yeah. keep it up to date. That's one of the things that the Capstone St. Ed's uh, folks said we should take a, a closer look at. The information had gotten so big, and like you said, it's anything under the sun. There are nearly 20,000 listings in that thing. The information had gotten so big that it was kind of unwieldy. So it had, it had taken purely digital form, no more book anymore, a lot of paper. So they dialed all that back. So it's it's free to the public. It's online. We took several steps to make the information a little bit easier to navigate. So we changed the information silos up a little bit. So you're not sorting through what you don't need to sort through to get to the answers you want. It's a lot easier to drill down now. We completely rebuilt the website with that in mind. Um and we work really hard to keep the accuracy as high as possible because that's one thing they mentioned. It's like it's so hard for you guys to do your job on this incredible resource because it's hard to navigate. So made it easier to navigate, which makes it easier for us to keep it accurate. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, that's when I describe that to people from other places who don't know about it, they're they're floored by it. I mean, it really is an incredible resource. And I, I always I tell folks who a don't know about the office to do some research. And B, go right now to the, the the information database. Like, go dig in. Like, you're going to find so many people you didn't know you could connect with. And it's free. You should go do it. It's I mean, a free database is insane. Amazing. I was a publicist for 10 years. Let me tell you, what, having a database is, is your... I mean, I'm not going to, the word Rolodex, it used to be Rolodex, <laughs> but like having a database is an amazing tool. And it, I, I would say 90% of the time when I'm meeting with artists or professionals just starting out in the music industry, I, I ask them about their database. Mm-hmm. And if they don't have one, I suggest that they start one. But in the meantime, they can build it from the Texas Music Office yeah. directory. And when you, you know, when you don't know who to contact, it's a great place to start, you know, and mm-hmm. it's... It's just a really fantastic resource. I was so shocked that it existed. Well, it's yeah, so I, comprehensive. I mean, it is really big, but it's comprehensive. Like, and and it's just a, it's just such a value. Yeah, well, and I have to I have given an awful lot of credit to Casey and the guys sure. who who built that because sure. what a forward thinking thing to do. You know, sure. that you can't create that overnight. And they worked really hard on it. And the guys still do. Steve Ray and the interns there are daily. Involved yeah. in keeping it accurate well, every single day. Moves around constantly in the music industry yeah. and a lot of different music, um, a lot of different industries. So it is the kind of thing that you gardening was the, was a great term Constant. for that because mm-hmm. you really do have to keep on it. How about like colleges and universities? Mm-hmm. Um, we have so many in the state of Texas, um, and you know, obviously around the country. But how can um, colleges and universities kind of help build build music communities and on campuses that can become supportive to the the work that the Texas Music Office is trying to do in in other communities outside of a college campus? Well, that can be extremely important. Um, the, the Corpus event you attended this time was different than the one we did last time. The one we did last time was really focused on, on, on information dissemination, and so we worked with Texas A&M University Corpus Christi to give us that form, like just pile your kids in and give them class credit for this, you know. 
And uh, so they yeah. were instrumental. That's class credit. <laughs> I think they got some class credit for it. I think they did. So, uh, you know, that that's one example of a university going, okay, well, this is new information we don't have. And that's great. So they created that forum, um, and it was it was really meaningful. <clears throat> uh, West Texas A&M University out in Canyon, uh, thriving metropolis of Canyon, uh, formed a multi-year partnership with Belmont that gives their kids the opportunity to go live and work in Nashville, bring oh, that information cool. back. Um, Tyler Junior College has formed a... Um, a partnership with Lindale, Texas, which is not a big place, but I would go there as an industry professional if I, if I was trying to educate myself. They're creating a music business school and a recording school <clears throat> on a music campus that that city's created. Wow. Pretty amazing. There are tons of examples of these things. I think that universities should, as a general thought, give a lot of thought to preparing people to actually be able to go out in the workforce and make a living. That means in any discipline, in the music industry, I think we have a little bit of a disconnect, and I don't want to do a disservice to people who work really hard in those curricula on, on college campuses and universities. I get concerned that we're creating a lot of um, performers who don't understand how to balance a checkbook in the industry and all the different things it takes and a thousand other ways you can make money in the industry. I, I, I give a lot of credit to kids who spend the amount of time it takes to become a professional violinist because I know how hard that is. I failed at it. I mean, it's incredibly hard to <laughs> no, you do were, that. You were a professional <laughs> Not like they are. But, you know, when they get out and they're professional trumpet players and professional cellists and these people who can play in orchestras, they're trying to cram a thousand people on the head of one pen. Mm -hmm. That person gets the job and everybody else goes to work in another field that doesn't require the degree they just got. So I would say as a general rule, you know, I would love for UT to create another music business school, right? I would love for Texas A&M to do that. And, uh, you know, Texas A&M Galveston and all these other places that have people who are interested in music and they're learning about it in a really either very general way, like teaching recorder in fifth grade, yeah. or they're learning about it in such a specialized way that they're sharpening a knife they'll never get to use. Right. And so... I would say as a general rule, we do a lot of talking to universities about that, and we do. We say as a rule, like, hey, look, these people need to at least have a cursory understanding of the 900 other ways that there are to make a, a, a buck in this business. So that when they get out and they're taking some time to find that long-term symphony job that I hope they get, maybe they can be a publicist, or maybe they can go run sound in a theater. Maybe they can work with bands to balance their checkbooks and that kind of thing, you know. A lot of different ways to stay in the industry. You're, you're not a failure if you don't make it as a professional trombone player. Right. You can be a music industry professional. You could be not a great a, manager for professional trombone players. You could. You know exactly what. There's a involved. niche, right? But they have to understand that that's a thing that exists in the first place. Totally. So, yeah, I, I sat with a really forward-thinking professor at, in El Paso at UTEP, and he was hammering these kids about that. And these kids were trying to study with Zul Bailey, who's class of the cellist world right now. Yeah. And. That was their dream to be him. But there's one of him. Right. And there were 60 of them in that class. And that's the point I made. Like, you can't all be that guy. What right. are you going to do? You know, yeah. learn to code. Figure something out. But this professor was really hammering them. I, I thought it was great. I just wish more would do that. Yeah. Uh, I know here in, here in Austin, Austin Community College is mm -hmm. really trying to do, uh, does a workforce program. I should have mentioned them. They do a great job. Entrepreneurship and yeah. then understanding business, music business. Great stuff. Yeah, no, I should have yeah. mentioned that. No, they do a great job. But, but yeah, I'm with you that like it would be great to have the state universities doing that and, and other colleges. Um, well, it seems like a no-brainer to me, but I understand that that's a big shift for universities to, to undergo. It seems like a no-brainer to me. Sure. Um, I guess the other point that you, you kind of tapped on was like 
just the introduction of like the other jargon in the music industry compared to when you're studying classical music. I mean, there's a lot of jargon that that it it should be it it, it should be familiar to to students when they're graduating college to know you know what a how, what pitch means when you're talking about uh, pitching um, a newspaper or an online, you know, <laughs> media outlet for for press coverage, as opposed to only having to do with you perfect know, pitch, your right. <laughs> perfect pitch and your vocals or something like that. Exactly. So, yeah. Well said. Absolutely. Um, and then the way there's something I have to go back to. I'm sorry. There is this thing in Texas with the recorder. What is that? People learn Fifth this. Fifth grade, right? Something like that. Fourth, something so. like that. Yeah, it's like fourth or fifth grade. It's music, music appreciation. Class, yeah, you basically have a music class and you play. <laughs> Everybody gets one. Yeah. Is it required? So this is not something that uh, that I've ever heard of outside. Of I thought that's just Texas. what you did. No, uh, if we didn't have that, I mean, I was on the clarinet. Well, now point, I feel but... really fortunate that I got to go to a school where we had that. Yeah. Because no, I don't it's know a if Texas. That's it's a Texas thing, I think. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a Texas thing. Yeah, well, yeah we're, definitely. I mean, you didn't I'm, grow up in Texas. No, I was in fifth grade in the Woodlands. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, definitely had the Woodlands. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a thing. I, was, mm. I thought I took it for granted. So, um, what what tips would would you share with artists um, to successfully kind of navigate through the music industry right now? Artists who are already established or artists who are starting out? Let's talk about both, since you asked. I think it's a different conversation for both. I mean, the first thing I would say to an artist, and and I say it all the time to people who come into the office, because our doors are open. We work for you guys. You can come in whenever you want. Um, And they sit down, and honestly, I've had conversations with folks who are just giving it a thought. They've played some acoustic with their friends. They've written a couple songs. And, you know, we all know you got to write 200 before you get one, you know, but... um, there's so much you need to know early in the music business, but the first thing you have to know is that if you're not serious about it 100%, if you're just giving it a go for fun, that's all it probably will ever be, right? So don't you know manage your expectations. If you're going to go to music school, you're going to educate yourself, you've got a better shot at being a music industry professional, but you have to take it as seriously as anything else you would do as a job, right? Mm-hmm. That's a lesson I don't think a lot of folks hear early. I didn't hear it early. I was like, oh, you're really good at that. You should come play in the band. I was like, oh, good, career. I didn't know it was going to be a career. It was just something that happened. I wish I had that conversation when I was 17 with somebody. And I got him. Lloyd, thank God Lloyd was there because he was saying these things to me. Well, he's supposed to be there. Yeah, he's just, it was great. But, I, you know, not everyone has that. If you're not as serious about music as you are about any other profession you would choose, manage your expectations, you know. And it can be a dangerous business Hmm. and keep your eyes open. But work as hard at it as you would work at anything else. And if you do, you can expect a relative level of success. But don't expect to be on a stage anywhere in front of thousands of people. No one owes you that. Hmm. You know, you can make a living. You could totally make a living playing for between 500 and 1,000 people a night. You make a great living. If you're lucky to get them, 100%. But don't think anyone owes you that. Work as hard as you do at anything else and you've got a shot maybe and manage your expectations. What I would tell people who are already established who've been around for a long time is do an inventory of your business. Take stock of what you do as much as possible. Introspection's not a bad thing. It shouldn't be something you're scared of. Take a look at your business. Who's working with you? Who's on your team? Are they actually working for you? Do you need to pay them? Yes, if it's the answer, great. Keep on it and stay in that relationship and make it work for you. 
if no is the answer and that keeps coming up, make a change, you know, make a change for your business. Like run your business like a CEO. You're a small business. It's yours. No one else sounds like you. No one else has your name. So look into it. You know, um, I think that's just generally what conversations come up quite a bit. Mm-hmm. How about for um, aspiring professionals looking to break into the music industry um, and build a creative career in a city or a state department? Kind of like, you know, the city of Austin has a music department and the state of Texas has a Texas music office. Are you talking about people who want to go into a career as a bureaucrat? Well, no, I'm talking <laughs> about... Don't do that. <laughs> Uh, how about just for young, for professionals looking to break into the music business part of it? Yeah, I think that's an easy one. I mean, look, if you live in a city, you're lucky enough to live in a city like Austin, go make friends with all the people, the nonprofits who matter to people and the businesses that are actually out there pulling for you. Like make them your best friends first. Know who runs the music office in Austin, right? No, go to a commission meeting, like actually plug in. Bring coffee. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But yeah, hey, look, but you know, plug in, like be a an active and contributing member to the society you you're asking to help you first of all, and then make those national relationships with people who are going to actually turn the needle for you financially. If you're a songwriter and you're streaming and you don't know what sound exchange is, I don't know how to help you. You need, you need to know, have some initiative, take some initiative and do some research about what the business is as a whole and, and and create art, do it all day long and, and spend as much, much time as you need doing that, but spend part of your time, Connecting with people in your city and figuring out what's going to turn the needle for you, bottom line, and what those relationships are. If you're not affiliated with PRO and you're a player, I don't know what to do for you. You know, If you're not making those fundamental choices early in your career and creating personal relationships with them, get on it right this second. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough. This has been such a fun conversation for me and just... I think it's the most comfortable I've ever been in recording a podcast. So it has, it's the Brendan Anthony effect. So thanks for joining us today, Brendan. It's been great talking to you. Hey, it's been great. And I do want to mention one thing if I can. Yeah, uh, please. And one, I also want you to mention the website for the. Oh, office. I absolutely will. And yeah, thanks so much for having me. And I think one of the coolest ways to get our message out is to do things like this. And you've made such an impact in Austin through your networking, uh, through the initiative you've taken to bring people together. I'm I'm proud to be here with you. Thank uh, you. Thanks so much for the thanks, ask. Brendan, that's nice. Um, yeah, people can access all that data we talked about, the resources we bring to bear at texasmusicoffice.com. I encourage anyone to do it. And you can see the core initiatives that we wake up and focus on every day, front and center. And we do a thousand other ancillary things, the relationship building you talked about, all those things, showcases around the country, highlighting Texas musicians. We're constantly busy doing other things but we spend a chunk of every single day focusing on these core initiatives that you can see front and center on the website. And one of those that we didn't touch on is the educational grant program that we run. Oh, yeah. And I just never miss an opportunity to talk about that because it's actually impactful to kids and to underserved communities. So if you go to the website and you look at a a box called the license plate grant. Oh, yeah. You can click through there and it'll give you all the information about what it takes to purchase a license plate and your gears start turning like, what does a license plate have anything to do with uh, music at all why Why are we talking about it but if you purchase a texas music office license plate 23 of the 30 dollars it takes to get one goes into a grant fund that we administer uh, Nonprofits can apply to that grant fund and we divvy those th- that money out uh to uh, get instruments to kids who are in um, educational opportunities they can no longer afford right. um, we get them lessons if that's what they need uh, and we work with communities around the state to create music programming and an otherwise underserved type community so those are all really general things I just said. No, uh, that's that one's huge too. So say it one more time. What is the name of it? 
Uh, it's the Texas Music uh, Educational License Plate Grant Fund. Great. I've got to work on that. <laughs> but that's what it is. So that was created in 2004. Uh, Representative Wilson, uh, Nikki Rowling, uh, some other folks got on that, and they contacted Casey about creating this method by which they could hand out grant funds. Um, it's raised hundreds of thousands of dollars. We rebranded it in 16 Worked on it in 15, rolled it out in 16, rewrote the rules a little bit so we could get a little bit more engaged in uh, different communities. Uh, but we've quadrupled the number of uh, dollars coming in. We've really wow. worked with artists to help sell it. Like you, might, you may see these pics of these artists holding these license plates. I have also seen videos. Yeah. Kevin Russell did an awesome one. There, plenty of people have pitched in without any remuneration at all. Yeah. Like they've just said yes. Uh, it's a great program. So we, we made... The thing is generic as humanly possible. We put a headstock of a guitar on it that Brett Stiles helped us design because we wanted to sell as many of them as possible. Who doesn't like that? Yeah, I, you know, it was a it, we we didn't want to niche it this time. You know, we may in the future again, but we wanted to get as generic as humanly possible with it. So no, it's cute. I, you know, I I think people, I would say it's attractive. Sorry, thank you. I think people know what it is, and it sure does a lot of good work. So tonight, uh, we're doing our very first uh, major fundraising effort. Uh, so we're allowed to accept donations. It doesn't all have to come through the license plate. So Anheuser-Busch is partnered with us to do a fundraiser at Floors, and they've sold Floors out, and they have one of their marquee bands playing, uh, the Josh Abbott band from uh, Lubbock, yeah. and they live here now. But uh, that's an Anheuser-Busch artist. They said all the proceeds are going to this thing. Oh, my gosh. So we're doing these activations around the state with them now. So we've totally opened up how we can increase funding to these uh, these kids, these opportunities we want to get involved with. So. I would counsel people to go to the website, check it out. It's a cool program. It's been around for a long time. We're just trying to kick it up several yeah. notches. So this will be our first try at it tonight. And I just wanted to let people know that that was a thing they could get yeah. involved with. So, And if they're not going to know about it tonight, then there's more coming. More coming, yeah, and multi-genre. So it's not all Texas red dirt stuff. It's These are hip-hop guys who are involved, and there's a Tejano component. And it's just going to hit a whole bunch of different markets. We're just going to throw things against the wall to see what sticks. And I'm really grateful to Anheuser-Busch for having that sort of interest in what oh we're doing. Gosh, yeah. It's really cool. So yeah, we're excited fantastic. about that. So, hey, so much thanks. Good stuff. I just wanted to. Yeah, of course. No, in. that's, I'm clapping because I love hearing about that. It's money a cool for kid, Money for music in schools and for kids who want to, who want to play music, which is like one of the most therapeutic things you can do well, in your life. Yeah, we give money to like kids in a new groove here in town. Yeah. And the work they do with 5,000 extra dollars or 10 more instruments, I mean, mm-hmm. it's life changing to people. It really is. And that's what we want the grant program to be. I just think it's incredible that an office in the state has a thing like that. Gets you know? to do that. So yeah. I never miss an opportunity. Well, thank you. And you again, thank you so much for coming and talking uh, to TuneCore today. I really appreciate it. I've had, a, I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, it so. flew by. That was fun. <laughs> Thanks for having me in. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks, Amy. Brendan Anthony from the Texas Music Office. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Music Made Me, the TuneCore podcast. The opinions expressed in this episode are those of the individuals talking and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of TuneCore. Check out TuneCore.com to help you distribute your music, register your original songs worldwide, and more. Connect with us on all social channels at TuneCore. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. 